So it's November 22nd, 2015. The message this morning is called Talmudim and the Door. If you don't know what the Talmudim or Talmudim are, this is the Hebrew word for disciples. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6 and 16. I probably won't surprise you. We are going to start in the law. We will move to the prophets. And then the writings and then the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. So the law, the Torah, the Nevim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And then the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. I am not Hebrew. I am a pork-eating Gentile and a redneck at that. And yet I think it's important every once in a while to include some of the things that come from a Hebrew culture through this book because we are a Western people and this is an Eastern book. And it is a reminder that the gospel did not originate with you. It has come to you, but you were essentially a foreigner and an outsider. The gospel originated with the people of Israel. And sometimes to properly understand something that it teaches, we need to approach it from their point of view. If you want to learn about Cinco de Mayo, you probably will not do it on the north face of the Alaskan slopes. Probably where it might be best to learn about Cinco de Mayo would be in Mexico, or at the very least, South Texas. Knowing something about the culture that the Bible comes to us in helps us understand the Bible. Can you say amen to that? In Genesis 6.16, the scripture says, make a roof for it. And finish the ark within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark. And make lower, middle, and upper decks. How many decks is that, church? Lower, middle, and upper. What this means to me is we either have a door that encompasses three decks. Or we have one door that is only one-third as high as the ship. Somebody say that's a small door. It may not be a small door when you think about an elephant going through it. That's a big door, right? When you think of a giraffe going through it, it's a big door. But when you consider the fact that Genesis 7, 16 says this, it'll show you how small the door is. The animals were going in, male and female, of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Say that with me, shut him in. In the law, in the heart of the Torah, we find that God shut the door. Somebody say, shut the door. Shut your mouth. Uh, We shut the door. I'm sorry, the spirit of Isaac Hayes came over me there for a minute with shaft. We shut the door. When you consider what that means, a door is an interesting thing. It's made for you to go through and for other people not to go through. How many of you let just anybody come through the front door of your house? A few of us actually do. But we also invite you to leave. (laughs) You can walk in and be drug out. It's up to you. But our heart's desire is that people would come in our front door. It is our desire to share our lives with the world. And yet, like you, we also have a deadbolt. Because there are some people that have proven we don't want them in the house. Right? God himself shut the door in the ark. Something is missing from today's message. We tend to say that the Lord loves you, the Lord loves you, the Lord loves you, as if he will not also shut and bar the door with you on the outside. 
What must it have been like, this small door or big door? If you say it's a big door because an elephant goes through it, how small is it when you realize only eight human beings on the entire planet went inside of it? All the rest were completely shut out. Now, God does not change. Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. His nature has never changed. The same God that shut out the unbelieving sinful world in Noah's time will shut out the unbelieving sinful world in our time. But the door was built for access. I say all of this to say in the law, we find out that there is a door, number one, and we find out that the door is shut to us unless something happens, something changes. Turn with me to Hosea 2. Say there when you were there. If you're looking for Hosea, find the major prophets and then go to the right of them and you will find Hosea. In Hosea 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak to her tenderly. Isn't it interesting that God takes his bride into dry places, into the desert, and that's where he gets our attention? Could it be that when you're in the heart of the city, when you're surrounded by all that you could ever want or need, when you're surrounded by all of the distraction, you don't have time to listen to him or his advances. But when you begin to feel the stress of the desert, when you begin to feel the dry, parched air, when you begin to thirst, he says, wow, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I will fill you. Could it be that he brings his people through the desert to illustrate our need for him? That he brings his people through the desert to show us that our dependence must be upon him. He takes her into the desert. And then in verse 15, there I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. Accor in Hebrew means trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. What kind of God do we serve? We serve the kind that will take you into the desert and that's where he'll give you vineyards. Because if you got vineyards in the fertile places, in the beautiful places, you would think you made them. But if he gives you a vineyard in the desert, then you go, wow, this came from him. He'll take you through a valley of Accor, a valley of trouble. And in that valley of trouble, he opens for you a door of hope. Oh, church, you know what this means? If you're in trouble, you're in a good place. That's where the door is. That's where the door of hope is. I was 18 years old and realized that I was living in a prison that I had constructed for myself, made out of my own sin. And it was in that place that the door of hope first appeared to me. It had been shut before me all of the rest of the time. I knew, and I knew that Noah was building his ark. I laughed at it. I mocked it. And for you young people, I'm not actually that old. Don't let the beard fool you. I am speaking in the form of a metaphor. I did not actually walk with Noah, and I have never seen a dinosaur and if the blonde-headed, blue-eyed one over there says so, then he will learn the discipline of the Lord. <laughs> it's when we're in trouble that we find hope. It's when you need great deliverance that you find a great deliverer. Do you know where I learned that? I learned in the prophets, the Nevim. The prophets teach us that there is a door of hope. Jesus is coming. The law is good, it is perfect, it is delightful, and he will be the living embodiment of it. In verse 16, 
In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. In my house, we say, why not both, right? (laughs) Oh, she wasn't listening. (laughs) Church, there is a difference between simply respecting the Lord as the sovereign of the world. Simply uh, acknowledging that he is God above all and loving him like you would love your spouse. See, I don't visit him once a week. I don't drop by twice a week. I don't um, send cards on his birthday, right? When would that be, by the way? I go to bed thinking about him. I wake up thinking about him. I don't pray for three hours a day because there's not an hour in the day that I do not pray. I am in love with him. I'm a six foot, nearly 300 pound redneck that is in love with a brown skinned Jew. Make all the jokes that you want. I'm unashamed about it. If people can run around the world in love with a pedophile prophet and follow a satanic book called the Koran and pray to Allah five times a day who has more in common with Satan than he does God, I'm unashamed to talk about my love for Jesus. And I've been unafraid for a very long time. I love Muslim people. And I want to see them born again. No one gets born again ever without first coming to the place where they realize just how wrong and wicked they are. The idea that you will simply love the hell out of them is wrong. I don't care who says it or how popular it has become. Your love for them is the opportunity to show what love is. Love cares enough to say the world stands condemned already, but there is a door of hope open to you. It is not gospel to simply tell people you're God's son and he loves you. John 8 says that you can be a son of the devil. How would you know the difference? Will you love them enough to get to know them? And when you get to know them, the Lord will address their specific issue through you. Jesus Christ spoke to Nicodemus in John 3 and he talked to him about being born again. In John 4... He spoke to the woman at the well and he spoke to her about the living water. He did not speak to the woman in John 4 about being born again. And he did not speak to the man in John 3 about the living water. Jesus knew what they needed to hear. He did not have a one size fits all prescription. He did not have a method and a manual that must be done in this order and in this way to be saved. Because he's the author of salvation. Shame on the church for institutionalizing a relationship. Shame upon people who will pay pastors to stand up and tickle their itching ears. Our church is obviously founded on some different principles. We believe that the word ought to prick the heart. We like it best when we're corrected. We've learned to love it because we read Proverbs 12. It was written on Cassidy's wall for her children. He who hates correction is stupid. And we don't want to be stupid. We love correction. The prophets tell us that the Lord opens a door of hope to us. Turn with me to Psalm 24. Let's read from the writings. Say there when you were there. Two of you were there. What's happening with the rest of you? That book in your lap is not to warm your thighs. It's to warm your soul. And if it's on the back dash of your car, you need to repent. Stand up, get out, and run and go get it and come back. If it's on your phone, we'll forgive you. That's about half of a Bible. It's close to the real thing. We want you to hold your Bible in your hands. We want you to get used to where the words are on the page. 
We want you to love the text so that you care that you have your Bible in your hands. It's hard to do that with an electronic screen. It's hard to do that in an electronic world. We want to be so intimately associated with this book that you never see me where I don't have it around me. Have you been with me to the gun range? My Bible is there. Have you been with me to a swimming pool? My Bible is there. We've been in the valleys in India and the mountains in Peru, but my Bible is there with me. Do you carry the Word of God with you everywhere? The little credit card commercial says everywhere you want to be. No, the only place that I want to be is in the Word of God. It is the Word of life. That's what it is. Are you in Psalm 24? Are you in Psalm 24? In Psalm 24, start with me in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He? The King of glory. The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. What we find out in the writings is that the Lord would open the door and walk through it. The writings are to teach the Hebrew people and all who would come after them how to live in a historical context faithfully. So Daniel is included in the writings so that you see a man who is in captivity how he lives in a faithful way. Can we say sometimes our situations are not ideal? Of course, many prophecies came forward about that this morning. But you get to choose how you live in that situation. This is why the underground church in China is not praying for revolution in their government. They're praying for revolution in their soul. They're not so concerned about their circumstances as the way that they react in their circumstances. My friends in India right now are suffering under a Hindu president who is hostile towards Christians. They're not praying that the Lord take him out. They're praying that the Lord would revolutionize their hearts and minds so that no matter what laws are made against them, Christianity would be attractive to all because of the power that is in it. Nothing is wrong with us simply because we're in trouble. In fact, trouble is right where we want to be. It's when we're in the midst of trouble that he hears us. Have you ever read Psalm 91? With a thousand falling at one side, ten thousand falling at the other. Psalm 91 ends with the words, He will call to me in trouble and I will answer him for he acknowledges my name. A great savior is for those who are in great trouble. Leonard Ravenhill once famously said, God comes to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. He is not interested in life as normal. In fact, he's looking for normal people who want to live in a supernatural way. Has he found any in this house this morning? I'd like to remind you that Jesus Christ said that he was this door that can be shut or opened, but is properly labeled a door of hope. Read with me John 10. Say there when you are there. We'll be in John 10 and verse 7. In today's climate, we'd have a larger offering if I simply said you're already a champion. But I don't want to go to hell with my money belt full. What I really want to do is charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun, kick it down, and steal from him. 
What I really want to do is see goats transformed into sheep. What I really want to see is sheep become shepherds. And the name of Jesus Christ, 11 scared Jewish boys changed the world as we know it. How can we sit back, this many of us, and think that we cannot have an effect on the world? Eight men have turned uh, Paris upside down. Really, 800 of us cannot turn this country upside down? When did we begin to believe that the devil and his kind were more supernatural than we are? I have a faith that cannot be imprisoned. I have a testimony that cannot be stopped. And saints, if you're born of God, you do too. We are not the church that is overcome. We are the church of the overcomers. I believe in the victorious church of Jesus Christ. Are you in John 10? Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. Some translations say door because it is the same thing. There's no real concept for a gate in Israel. This was just an opening. All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Come on, say, will be saved. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the door. Have you ever read that in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get to the Father except through the Son. The Son is the only door. You cannot climb over the side of the ark. You cannot burrow a hole through the side that you're on so that you don't have to turn around and go a different way to find the door. Can you imagine what that must have been like in Noah's day? Millions of people. I bet when that thing started to float, they went, there's a boat. Of course, they knew there was a boat. He built it for 120 years. Talk about the grace of God before the judgment of God. He sent Enoch before it, a man that so testified to God's righteousness that he was actually translated. This is a God of mercy. But if we stay in our condemnation, then there remains no way for us to be saved. The only way is Jesus the Christ. You know, it was not so easy for him to become the door. Put Matthew 26, 38 on the screen. If you would like to turn to it, turn to it. If not, we rarely lie when what we put on the screen. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know then that he prayed three times. Three. If there's another way, Father, that this cup could pass from me, nevertheless, your will be done. Somebody say that was hard. Can I tell you that if Jesus Christ was asking for another way, it's not because he was a weenie. It's not because he was built like today's powder puff Christians, little daffodil pastors. It's because it was hard. Jesus was not looking to be a victim. He was not trying to prove that he was wounded so the world would rescue him. Jesus Christ was not a hypochondriac, spiritually or physically. This means that if he's standing before the Lord saying, is there any other way? It's because he has been pushed to his breaking point at the thought that he would be separated from his father. What did it cost for there to be a door for you, a door of hope? You know, this was also foreshadowed in the law. What an interesting thing. 
in Exodus 12, in verse 7, we see another door. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. At the time of Passover in Exodus, while the people of God were in slavery and under siege in Egypt, God had the most unique program to deliver them. He was going to bring judgment, Exodus 12, 12 says, on the gods of Egypt, judgment. But at the same time, he judged the Egyptians and judged the gods of Egypt. He would show mercy to his people. And why? Because they would enter into a door that was covered with blood. The 13th verse says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. They were in Egypt. They were never raptured from the responsibility to be Israelites in Egypt. They actually stood in Egypt. But God made a distinction between those who were covered by the blood and those that were not covered by the blood. In the Older Testament, it took an innocent lamb and we painted a doorway. With his blood. But on that very same day in the Newer Testament, we find out that your door of hope is painted in his blood. It was not an easy thing. He was overwhelmed in his soul to the point of death. That's not something to be taken lightly, is it? And yet, we've become very fond in our century, in our country, and we've spread it to the rest of the world. If every head will bow and every eye will close, I'm not being serious. Don't you do it in here. And someone will raise a pinky. Then you're as good as sealed forever. We're done. The extent of your service to God was your pinky lift. This is an abomination. It is a heresy. If you're in here and you got saved by the pinky lift method, if that was your transforming experience. I'm not mocking you, I promise. If that was truly a beginning and you have run after Jesus, it's the running after Jesus that I'm impressed with, not the pinky lift. But to insinuate that you enter into the ark, this bloody doorway of hope, you enter into Christ merely through a pinky lift is to insult the blood of Christ. They all know, Pastor, it's a, it's a gift. And because it's a gift, uh, nothing needs to be done. It's just a gift. In fact, our job is to tell the world how much God loves them. We can even heal on the street so they will know God loves them. But it is not our job to tell them anything that is required. You show me this in the preaching of the apostles. You show me this in any letter, anywhere in the Bible, whether New or Older Testament. It's not there. The love of God has been displayed in that He gave us a door of hope. The love of God is being displayed in that He cares about you. He prophesied to you today. He may heal you before you're saved. But the purpose of all of those things is so that you can turn from your wickedness and spend the rest of your life serving Him. Today we have changed the nature of salvation and we have changed the nature of discipleship. This morning I'd like to talk to you about three areas of salvation. 
Not because it's a three-step process, but because you're a three-part being. You are a spirit. You live in a body. And your soul is the bridge between those two. We could say that when you're born again, your spirit knows the truth about God and you're redeemed, but your hair still turns gray. Or in my case, falls out. So as redeemed as I am, it hasn't made its way to my flesh yet. My mind, will, and emotions, my soul are being brought into the covenant of God every time I read the, read the Word and exalt the Word above my own thought. And I'm waiting for the redemption of my body. Put that chart on the screen for us. When we're thinking on this subject, I wanted to show you. By the way, this is typed neatly, but it's written in my Bible. This was not something that I found on the internet. They never are. The things that we preach and teach here come organically out of our own study. As God interacts with us, we interact with you. I had no idea when I met with Brad yesterday that he planned to share that salvation is more than simply uh, a moment. Salvation is the journey that comes after it. The Hebrews actually call this a walk with God. They Enoch walked with God and was no more. What does that mean? Was he holding God's hand? No, it means literally that he believed God enough that it was defined in his actions that could be called a walk. Noah walked with God. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of unbelievers. Walking is how the Hebrew people describe their faith. Why? You have to believe in the direction you're going. You have to believe in the instructions you've been given. And then it shows up in your walk. First, I want to talk to you about being justified. When we say justified, many of you have had an experience where you've called upon the name of the Lord. Maybe you raised a pinky. Maybe that's where it started. Again, my issue is not with where you start. My issue is in making the starting line the finish line. In Ephesians 2.8, This is a correct thing to say. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you hear the past tense there? So I would correctly ask you, when did you get saved? And to that extent, it sounds like an event. Well, I went to Six Flags in 1993 and I got saved in 1993. But when your salvation is only an event, it's not real salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Now that you've been justified by God, you've been freed from the penalty of your sin, things should be becoming new. Part of justified is that you are becoming new. The teaching that says, because I'm justified, I stand in Christ's accomplishment, so nothing about my life has to change, and you don't judge me, is patently false. If you were in Christ, you are becoming new. If you are not becoming new, you are not in Christ. Even if you raised a pinky and an index finger. Even if you filled out a decision card, even if the pastor visited you, the new birth can be seen through new growth. Church, from the moment that a person is justified, 
It ought to show up in your life, which takes us to sanctified. Justified has to do with penalty. Sanctified. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Say, do not let. You have an obligation. You have a mandate from God. Do not let sin reign. Everybody in the hyper-grace movement, no matter how pretty their hairstyles and suits are, they ignore your obligation to do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 1 Peter 1.9, for you are receiving. Say, are receiving. Doesn't that sound like an ongoing process? You are receiving the, sal- the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Sanctification is ongoing. It's being freed from the presence of sin. When you're thinking about this, church, I I rather should have said power of sin. Still present. It will still be around. It just doesn't have mastery over you. When you're thinking about this, I wanted to share with you some verses regarding Lazarus. And perhaps this will help you understand the need to be sanctified. We're going to come back to that slide in a minute. For just a second, go with me to John 11. Say there when you were there. In fact, if you go in your Bible to John 11, then we can leave this slide on the screen. In John 11, read with me from verse 43. It's going to go like this. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Are we going to say at this point that everything that is ever needs to be done for Lazarus is done? Well, he was dead and now he's alive. Uh, you've heard probably countless sermons that said, you know what? Um, he didn't just get raised from the dead. He also had to take off his dead clothes. That's kind of like getting rid of those old practices. And so far, so good. Pick up with me in 12.1. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, just in case you didn't read the previous chapter, right? Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, it hasn't struck you yet the way that it struck me, and I get that. But it will here in a second. What would you think if Lazarus said, hey, I know in chapter 11, verse 43, you raised me from the dead. I got it. We're all good there. But about that dinner thing in your honor tomorrow night, uh, I don't have time. I mean, my planner's full. I know I was supposed to be dead right now and, and I'm alive. But the thing is, is since I became alive, you know, I already I filled my spot. 
See, one of the problems is we are Lazarus. We've been raised from the dead, and we think that because we were raised from the dead, nothing else is required. I would submit to you that Lazarus probably never made it more than about 18 inches from Jesus' footsteps after this. You know why? Because he raised him from the dead. And when you've been raised from the dead, you enter into the process of sanctification. You continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You go, Lord, where'd you put your foot that I might put my foot there? How do I do what you did? Because although he was raised from the dead, he was still in flesh that would die again. He was still in a body that craved things that were wrong. He still had a soul that was often at war with what his spirit knew was right. In other words, he was just like you. Why was he at the banquet table? The better question is, where else would he be? Would you describe yourself as following so closely to Jesus that you never miss something that's for his honor? Or after being raised from the dead, have you gone, you know, Lord, now that you've done that for me, I, I get mine. I'm done. How upset would you be with Lazarus if John 12, 3 said, Lazarus was too busy for Jesus' appointment? Oh, come on, church. Are you thinking with me today? Are you tracking today? How about this little nugget? Skip down to verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had risen from the dead. We never compete with Jesus. You can't. You know why? Jesus raised himself from the dead. It took Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is righteous all by Himself, but it took Jesus to make you righteous. You'll never compete with Him, but the question is, are you closely associated enough with Him that people would come to hear you just like they would come to hear Him because you are saying what He says. You are doing what He does. You are like Him. See, Lazarus didn't just come out of the grave and say, hey, I'm good now. I'm done. He came out of the grave and began to imitate Jesus so that they came to see the one who was like Jesus. Do you remember that in the 11th chapter they said about Lazarus and Jesus, they said, oh, look how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus and the way that Lazarus shows his love to Jesus is by obeying his commands. Have you ever read 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. Could you put those up for just a second? I'm sorry, I always throw you curveballs. None of our messages are planned. They figure out this as we start. 5 and 6. There we go. His mother said to a sir... No, no, 1 John 2, 5 and 6. <laughs> 1 John 2, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. See, it is not enough just to raise a pinky. If you are in Him, you must walk as He walked. I'm glad that at eight years old you made a profession of faith. I'm glad that you got baptized in front of a church of supporters. I'm not nearly as concerned with that as what you've done every day since. Are you with Jesus at every place He's honored? Are you closely associated enough with Jesus? Well, let me show you this next verse. In John 12, starting back in 9, Meanwhile, the large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of Him, 
but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. They didn't just want to kill Lazarus because he was the recipient of a miracle. They wanted to kill Lazarus because he was like Jesus. Listen, if people hate Jesus and are okay with you, that says more about you than them. When you have truly been justified, when the penalty of sin has been removed from you, you are free to challenge the power of sin in your life, to look right at sin and say, you will not reign over me. In the name of Jesus, I declare war on you. I don't have to live like they live. This attitude says, oh, well, we're just old sinners. Shame on you for saying that. Now that you have been raised from the dead, you are more than a sinner. You're a spirit-filled, sanctified saint of God. This is what sanctified means. Set apart for Him. Let me ask you, Lazarus, Lazarus was so closely associated with Jesus that it wouldn't be enough to kill Jesus. The testimony would keep going. They'd have to kill him too. Would anybody consider that they'd have to kill you to stop the testimony of Jesus on the earth? When did Islam become more bold for its faith than Christianity? That's anathema. In Hebrew, it's halal. Sounds like I'm choking, I know. It means to the polite folks in here, heaven forbid. For some not so polite, it means H-E double hockey sticks, no. And Paul said it about four times in Romans. And it was always about whether or not we continue to sin while we're in the faith. Church, sanctification is every bit as important as justification. And everybody jumping up and down about the number of pinkies that were raised. This is off base. There should be fruit that shows the truth of your conversion. And that fruit ought to get better every year. I believe some anointed woman of God told spirit-filled saints the other day that old wine that has been matured, that is fermented, that is wonderful, that is what everyone is after, if you don't rotate it, if you don't agitate it, if you don't shake it up, wine left in the same position too long sits on its dregs and becomes sour like vinegar. Zephaniah, the first chapter in the 12th verse, says it. I taught it to my wife. I learned it from one of my students in another country. Don't you love the kingdom? We cannot institutionalize this relationship. It has to be living, breathing, and active. Could we put our chart back on the screen? I want to show you as we move on from this. When you obtain a position in Christ is when you know that He has forgiven you that you're becoming a new creature. The penalty of sin no longer defines you. You're not walking around covered in guilt and shame. Now that you're in Christ, we have an obligation to count ourselves dead to sin. We have an obligation to continue in our salvation because we are nearer now than when we first began. In other words, it is very much an ongoing race. Philippians 2.12 says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. While we're on that subject, Hebrews 2 is written to believers. 
It is written towards believers. Hebrews 2 and the first verse. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we... Listen, if you go to India with me on any time, you will see meetings that start at 8.30 in the morning, and they finish after midnight. Uh, Most of the time, every person in the building is healed. Tumors fall off of people. Tuberculosis gets healed. We have seen everything that you can possibly imagine. My 18-year-old son, when he was 14, got a new eardrum in a meeting in India. Before we left, it it was uh, such a bad surgery that they probably couldn't fix it. And we needed to schedule it. In India, he had a pop in his ear while we were praying, and he got a brand new eardrum. But we don't serve God for trinkets. It turns out that while we're serving him, the kingdom shows up. That's, that's, That's what it means. And if you wrestle with this scripture... Let me ask you something. When a service goes past an hour here, are you ready to rebel? I mean, it's supposed to be 58 minutes of fun and fast excitement from bell to bell, right? From the time you enter the parking lot till you leave. I preach an hour and a half on purpose all of the time. Okay? And and there's a reason that we do it. If you're going to go to India and they love the Word of God so much that an all-day meeting they still feel shorted, it needs to go into the night. If you're going to go to China and find out that in China a four-hour sermon is short, why do we love the Word of God so much less? Is it because our chairs aren't as padded? No, in India they're sitting on benches and on the floor. Is it because we're not climate controlled? The last meeting I taught in India was 116 degrees and there was no air conditioning. Well, what is it? The truth is, is it's the people. God's not any different. The gospel's not any different. The people don't want it because they've been told if they simply raise a pinky, their obligation to God is done. Let's go to Luby's. Church, you need to want to sit at the table with Jesus. You need to want to follow in his footsteps. None of us have reached the goal of the faith. How do I know that for sure? How do I know there's not a person in here? Because as beautiful as you are, none of you are yet glorified. When you are glorified, the presence of sin won't even be around you. In Romans 8.23, not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know how you'll know when you're glorified? You won't age anymore. You know how you'll know when you're glorified? You will have a heavenly body that has an earthly presence, just like Jesus. When you're glorified, no one will miss it. In fact, every eye will see it. So don't tell me that salvation is just an event in the past. Salvation is also something that is a process that is ongoing. It is also something that we are still waiting to see the fulfillment of. In your spirit, you have been set right with God. In your soul, you are conforming it to the very image and thought of God. And in your physical man, you are waiting for the transformation that God will bring at His coming. Has anybody in here done all that needs to be done? Of course not. You are not glorified. You have not reached the end of the race. Body, soul, and spirit. You are not yet like Jesus. So how dare we give up so easily with such a faint-hearted effort? You have a baptismal certificate. Good. 
You can carry that right into those dark places with you. But when you have been redeemed in your spirit, and it shows up by taking every captive, every thought captive, and comparing it with the knowledge of Christ, when it begins to show up in your daily life, then we can be sure that we're making our calling and election sure, but we're still not done. We haven't stood before Him. By the way, the law was to teach you that you need to be justified. The prophets were to teach you about the penalty of sin and the need to be sanctified. The writings were to teach you that every man who lives faithfully in his historical context will be glorified. It's almost like God knew how to grab all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And He knew how to incline all of you towards all of Him. Are you giving Him all of you? Are you only giving Him about as much as your peers? You know, Lord, when compared to them, I'm doing fine. Well, you might need better friends. Lord, compared to last year, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, but last year's not the standard. The Word of God is the standard. We have all these cute Christian cliches to insulate us from having to grow in Christ. Our pastors are usually so overwhelmed with sin that they're scared to preach like this. But you know what? Sin doesn't have mastery over me. Uh, I am at war with it. There are days I'm disappointed in myself, but they will not turn into weeks. In the name of Jesus, they won't. I am at war. I have power over... Church, sometimes you need to learn what Winston Churchill said. The man at war does not stop to address every dog that barks at him. There are thoughts that come into my head that I don't even acknowledge as mine. They don't pass the test of the Word of God, so I throw them out before I would even consider them. I love you. I really do. I love you with all of my heart. It is my experience in dealing with people for more than 20 years that most people are defeated in their thoughts before we ever get to their actions. You need to be renewed in the Word of God. You need to be renewed. You need to be renewed. You need to be renewed. And then, notice that Lazarus followed Jesus around. Lazarus was seated with Jesus at the table. We agree there. Put Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 on the screen. I want to show you this. This will be a, a surprise for some of you. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Amen. We were justified. It is by grace that you have been saved, have been, past tense. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Where are you seated right now? Well, if I'm not mistaken, having completely lost my mind, you're here. You're seated right here. And yet, you are destined to be seated there with Him. You are occupying space on earth, but your heart is in the heavens. You're occupying space on earth, but the work that justified you is seated at the right hand of God right now. Church, when we're considering something like this, understand that Lazarus was seated with Jesus at the table, but he still was dying. He still was sinning. He still had to be discipled and trained to walk with Christ. And now it would be more important than ever. And why would it be more important than ever? Because now he's a target. He's authentically been born again. 
Look, when we take Christians who have authentically been born again and we make them our teachers immediately because they're the only ones in the room that have been authentically born again, we're raising emperors up out of infants. Church, there needs to be a process of discipleship. Would you be surprised to find out that the Bible has a process of discipleship? Would that, would that strain your thoughts? Tell me, can you see this on the, on the board if I write it? A guy that I haven't heard from in 22 years contacted me about four weeks ago. And he said, Eric, I, I, I watched a sermon the other day on y'all's app. I thought that was so neat because I haven't seen him since 1993. And then he was not a Christian, and now I don't know. And I waited to see what he got out of the sermon. He said, man, you have really lost a lot of hair. Thank you for that. Uh, my response was, I noticed you didn't post your picture on Facebook. Uh, actually, I love him, and uh, he was with me when I was dead. And now I'd like him to know about the life that is in me. Church, being born again and being in the process of sanctification somewhere is the beginning. It's not the end. If we make the starting line the finish line, you shortchange Christ. You shortchange Him. Can you know for sure that you're free from the penalty of sin? Yes. Does that alleviate you of the obligation to free yourself from the power of sin? Not by a long shot. When we see this word, Talmudim. This Hebrew word actually means not just one who learns, but one who learns for the purpose of becoming like his master. Okay, so you could learn something like how many, uh, oh, we got a youth group over here. Um, how many of you have experienced the algebra? Are you really excited about mastering algebra in your daily life outside of your studies? One, she, she wants to be a pilot, and uh, they'll have to know vectors. It'd be the first time she'll ever use it in her life. Did you notice that? They're learning, but they have absolutely no interest in that becoming a part of their life. They don't want to be like their algebra teacher. In fact, it's just something that they have to learn. For discipleship to be discipleship, for it to be real discipleship, you have to intend to become like the one who is teaching you. Is there any Christian that should not be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's look at what the disciples of Jesus Christ had to do. Are you ready? I'm going to go through these fairly quickly and we're going to put scriptures on the screen because there's yet something else that I want to show you. And I, I with all my heart, if it doesn't make an impact on you, then uh, I will have failed, but you will have a greater consequence for the failure than I did. With all of my heart, I'm going to try to get you this. Because it's not taught around us. It's not displayed around us. But the reason that we've ordained five men who are in full-time ministry today, the reason, actually six men who are in full, the reason there are five churches out of this little church that started in a garage, and that we're working on five continents with such a small, humble beginning, is what we're going to teach right now. It's it. No, no, nobody at any time ever... Um, Gave us their inheritance. 
Nobody at any time ever bought us a property. Nobody at any time ever did this. Our church is built on one thing and one thing alone. A love for the Word of God and a desire to be discipled. And because of that, in about five years, you can take a Christian who is serious and turn them into a five-fold minister who is ready to absolutely turn the world upside down. It takes about five solid years. How do I know that? Because every five years, that's exactly what we've done, and they're still going today, and some of their wives are in our service today. All right, T. By the way, this part came from one of our disciples. T. The T in Talmudim can form an acrostic. It means to take in. You cannot be discipled, and you cannot disciple others without taking them in to your life. There is no such thing as discipleship from a distance. Look at Mark 3, 13. When Jesus selected people, it says Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. The gospel will call you from something to something. And when you see someone uh, maybe sell a house and move from another state, you do whatever it takes to be close to them. And you expect of them to do whatever it takes to be close to you. Do you know why? God thought enough of the relationship to let there be sacrifice in it. Jesus called those he wanted and they came to him. When you see somebody responding to the call, you do whatever it takes. Look at Matthew 3.14 about taking in. But John tried to deter him. No, I'm sorry, Mark 3.14. It was the same passage, next verse. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be, that they might be, it is not possible to be discipled without being with. You can't be discipled by Jesus without spending time with him. Jesus is our chief shepherd. Peter said that we are shepherds under him. The fivefold ministry is a gift from, the, from Jesus Christ to the body to prepare it for works of service. You cannot be discipled without spending time with those who are discipling you. How many Christians were saved by raising a pinky and then never discipled by anyone? And then we wonder why there's such immaturity in the body of Christ. You know, in India, they will not baptize you until... Everybody in the community has seen your life change and you have sacrificed enough to pay for the church body to have a, um, a celebration feast. And I, the first time I heard that, I thought, how, how could you, you're, these people, are, how could you do that? I said, if it's not, they would save for a car they wanted. They would save for something else they wanted. If they're not serious enough to sacrifice financially, then we don't consider them real Christian. The church is not keeping the money. The people are eating together. I think it's beautiful. You know, you should ask the woman who asked me if we had a heated baptismal one time what the response was. Um, To be discipled, you have to come to Jesus and then you have to be with him. This is take in with the Talmudim. Uh, How how about this? Uh, Turn up Matthew 11, 29. It's not enough just to be around. You could stand around the door to the ark and still perish in the flood that would come. There has to be an attachment. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, Take my yoke. A yoke is a way of life. 
Say that with me. A yoke is a way of life. Uh, all of the farmers in here, this is not putting a, a, a wooden thing on your back. This is a way of life. Rabbi's teaching, the way they carried it out was called a way of life. Take my way of life upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. If you are going to be discipled by Jesus or, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Or as he said about Timothy, Timothy will come and remind you of my way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. We are disciples of Jesus, but you are absolutely discipled by men. Anybody that has an axe to grind with that issue, it reveals something about your heart. If you cannot be discipled by men who are following Jesus, then your salvation is independent of the whole community of God. That, that's an interesting kind of growth, isn't it? God ordained this to happen a, certain, happen a certain way. Take my yoke upon you. We have to be attached to Jesus. In John six sixty six, do you remember what Peter said to Jesus? He said, where would I go? You have the words of life. You want to know what discipleship looks like? It's when you want to take on the way of life of the other person, not the three points that you're supposed to believe. Not just raise a pinky, not have a warm fuzzy at an altar, but you want a life transformation. And when asked to separate, your thought would be, I'm so attached that I believe you have the words of life. You want to know why uh, LCMF has been successful in raising up pastors? Because we only disciple those that show consecration to us and us to them. If, if they're not as committed to us as we are to them, then we move on. And you know what? Most talk a very good game, but don't actually do it. Some are so filled with insecurity and so overwhelmed by their own image that they could never be taught by someone and their lives show it. Their lives absolutely show it. They're as frantic and chaotic as anybody in the world. And because they have actually been born again, it's dangerous. Because they have the spark of the life of God in them, but they mislead everybody that's around them in their toxic independence. Real discipleship is a safeguard. You know what else? It's a safeguard for the one doing the discipling. If you have somebody this committed who's around you who loves the word of God this much, it's an invitation for you to walk in a higher path, on a higher plane and with a higher standard because you care about them. You're as attached to them as they are to you. I, I'm just going to go ahead and say this while, while there's such a stillness in this air. If you can't receive this in your church, move. If it bothers you, if it offends you that I say that, repent and then move. We are far from the only one. There are churches all over the world that are like this. But if there is no such thing as the discipleship we're describing in your church, you're not actually in a church. You're in something with a steeple, something with stained glass, something that occasionally quotes from this book, but their way of life is not like Jesus. Because every day of his life, this is what he was doing. I'd like to move on. You'd like to move on? Let's go to lavish. The L in Talmudim, lavish. Could we put Mark 14, 22 on the screen? Think of what an amazing... How many of you would like to have seen the multiplication of the bread? Uh, one of the anointed women taught on that, huh? Okay, it's, that's Wade's girl sitting on the second row. 
taught on the multiplication. How many of you would have liked to be in this verse, though? While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Listen, the first people to get the bread that multiplied were the disciples. And what were they to do with it? Give it out. But they were the recipients. They were being lavished very first with all of his time, all of his attention. They're right there next to what is happening. They were there to see the bread multiply where the guy in the back of the crowd just had to hear about it until it got to him. When you find somebody who really wants to be discipled, you lavish them with your attention. You take them wherever you go. You invite them while you do dishes, while you cut the grass, whatever it is, you lavish yourself on them. You know why? Because that's how you impart to them whatever you have. It cannot occur simply from a pulpit. It actually works best changing flat tires and diapers, which are roughly equivalent. One's melted tires and the other's tires with a blowout. Look at Luke 9, 57. A farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering seeds, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. 9.57. There you go. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. What were they doing? Walking. We think discipleship is when we have a cleverly prepared essay that we read to people. Discipleship is what is happening between your meetings. Say, who has time for this? I mean, we all have to work. Yes, it will always be sacrificial. Always. You'll have to do without some sleep. You'll have to prioritize things in a way that you make time for it. Are you beginning to see why we don't make very many disciples anymore? Nolan, do you remember where we met? Building a fence. Uh, Daniel, we met on a missions trip. Uh, Golly, as we look around the room, I doubt there's anybody in here we didn't meet outside of a church. Imagine that. You know, when you think about this, discipleship is the way that you live, not the way that you preach. Do you want to be discipled? Do you want to go make disciples? We're teaching you what is required to do more than raise a pinky. How about this? We will model. How many of you had a parent that said, do as I say, do not do as I do? Jesus was nothing like your parent. Not not at all. In John 13, starting in verse 12, listen to these words. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He set for them, hold there. He set for them a model. He showed them in his life what they should be doing in their life. (laughs) If I said that to you, would you find that offensive? I'm going to show you. Right now, Sebastian, what you should do in your life. Just the first thought that comes to you, like, who does he think he is? This is my life. Well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? If it's still your life. What would Lazarus have said to Jesus? Whose life did Lazarus live? 
See, if you've been brought from death to life, you don't own your life anymore, do you? You used it up. It was dead. Now the life that you have is actually a gift. So if someone said to you, and they were called of God to do it, your life should look like this, would you find that offensive? See, if you find it offensive, then you've not actually died, have you? In fact, the degree to which you can be offended probably is the degree to which you're still living your old life. Jesus did this and set an example for them. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. There's a large church off of 59 in this town. See whether you can get that pastor to let you hang out with him. See if you can get one of his secret service Christians in their strange coats to let you hang out with them. Go knock on his door. See if you find it locked or gated. There's a reason that the pastors in this church open our homes to everyone. It's more amazing to me not who comes, but who doesn't come. You know who does not stop by the houses of the pastors on the nights that it's open? Those who say they want to be discipled. The ones that are saying, you know, I really, I want to be discipled. They don't make time for it. You know who our houses are filled with? Those who are being discipled. How about that? It's interesting how that works. The model. How about uh, the next verse? I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This model was set in a way that it was intended to be repeated. You don't just take people in and attach them to you. You lavish what God has given you on them. And then you model what a Christian life looks like for them, which takes us to implement. You expect any believer who has seen the model to implement that model in their own life. In the American church, we like to elect leaders that we're proud of, but they do not expect us to do what they do. Have you ever called your pastor for help in prayer? Look, y'all are scared to death, aren't you? JJ, have you ever called your pastor for help in prayer? But if he's a decent pastor, he will teach you that, yes, I'll pray with you, but the most powerful prayer that will ever happen in your home belongs to you because you're the head of your home. A pastor that wants you dependent on him is no pastor at all. He's an idol. You model something so that it can be implemented in their lives. Could you put Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 14, verse 15 on the screen? As evening approached, the disciples came to him. This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Why did Jesus look at ordinary men and expect something extraordinary from them? Because they had seen him do exactly the same thing and he expected it of them. Let me ask you, do you expect to do the things Jesus did? Are you satisfied that you simply came out of a grave? See, they wanted to kill Lazarus, not because he came out of the grave, but because many people were believing on Jesus as a result of Lazarus' ongoing actions. Oh, come on now. It's very quiet in here. You know, if it's a football game, we don't mind if it goes into overtime. When people try to implement things, something is going to happen. 
Uh, Brent, you've put in some flooring, right? The first time you put it in, was it a glorious, wonderful experience? Like you just thought heaven had come down and kissed you on the face? But now when you put it in, it's better than the last time, huh? You remember those blisters? Oh, man. Uh, Sometimes when you set out to implement what you have seen modeled, something else happens. You need to be directed. Another way to say it would be supervised. Can I tell you that they don't always get this right? Could you see Mark eight seventeen on the screen for me? When the disciples set out to try to do the things that Jesus said to do, you find scriptures like this. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts so hardened? To which the disciples probably ran off and said, he never says anything nice to me. I think he likes Judas better than us. He loved them enough to model for them what they should do. He loved them enough to expect that they would implement it. And he loved them enough to direct them even when they didn't get it right. And you know what? They didn't hate him for it. They were thankful because they got better and better and better. And the proof of their ministry is sitting in this room today. How about John 15, 15? I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Listen, Jesus Christ did not teach them this process so that they could get to the place that they've been directed and stay a student forever. Are you a student in the kingdom? I hope so. But at some place, the student has to become a peer to the one that was teaching them. This is not Amway. This is not a multi-level marketing scheme. At some point, every disciple becomes like his master. So Jesus said to his own disciples, I've appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, fruit that lasts. But maybe, maybe more shocking than that is he entrusts the whole plan in Matthew 28, 18 to them. He tells them to go and make disciples. What does that tell you? When you've been discipled by Christ and the process is finished, you are making disciples. Oh, so while we're sitting on our salvations, our attention spans weighed down with long-winded preaching, let's, let's strike at the heart of the beast for a minute. How long have you been a Christian? Six months? A year? Five years? Ten? Fifteen? Twenty? We're over twenty years, then I'm going to stop with the decades for you. Where are your disciples? Could it be that you're not making disciples because you were never discipled? Because when Jesus discipled men, he initiated ministry in them and they went and discipled. If you're not making disciples, 
could it be because you never took the time to be discipled yourself? There is another step, and this is the one that the student added, and I was so thankful for it. It is so in line with God's Word. Magnify. If you wanted to write it as multiply, it would work that way too, but it's based on this scripture. It's John 14, 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. That's at the initiation phase. He will do even greater things than these. That's when it's magnified. Because I am going to the Father. Every disciple should surpass their master. You know, I love Jesus. Jesus walked on water. How cool is that? Peter's shadow healed people. Do you realize that? Fifth chapter of Acts, his shadow healed people. There's no record of that ever happening with Jesus. Is it offensive to you to think that you would be expected to do greater things than Jesus? It is the normal process of discipleship. You take what had been given to you. It took them their whole life to gain it on this journey. They were justified. They fought through the process of sanctification and are closer to being glorified than you are. And so they've been further down this road and you get all of that experience crammed into as short a time as they can give it to you in. You have the rest of your life to grow it, to expand it. You ought to surpass your teachers. You know why? Your teachers already know everything they're telling you. That's why they're your teacher. And you're now getting their lifetime of experience in the shortest possible framework with one expectation. That since you got it given to you on a platter, you would take it and grow it well beyond the influence of their own ministry. This is how the kingdom multiplies. You know, when I was looking at this, and I'm going to do this quickly because I don't want to unnecessarily offend you. I don't mind offending you, but I don't want to do it for no reason. Taking these letters, the T, the L, the M, and the D, these four consonants in Hebrew make up this word. And if you were going to do that, I'm going to write it from right to left like the Hebrews would. The first is a tav. And my Hebrew writing is not perfect, but you probably will recognize it if you want to Google it later. Uh, From right to left here, we have a tav. Can y'all see this? You can take a picture of it afterwards. Then we have a lamed. After the lamed, we have a mem. After the mem, we have a dalit. I'm going to put in a different color here. The way that this would have been written the first time it was ever used. This is modern Hebrew written right here. What I'm going to write is the Hebrew from the time period between Moses and um, David. This tav looked like that. Can anybody on the front row tell me what that looks like? How about that? The lamed looked like a shepherd's staff. The mem looked like a wave of water. Can y'all see that on the front row? I hope you'll be able to in the back. And the dalit look like a door. In Hebrew, every letter has a sound. But more than a sound, that picture also has with it an association. 
In other words, when you think of water, you might think of mighty. Because, man, is there anything more powerful than the ocean? If you associate with it the normally accepted um, Hebrew paradigms of what these letters represent, it is so beautiful that words can barely describe. I'm going to put it in red down here for you. Across this tav is sign, monument, or covenant. But today I'm just going to write it as monument. The staff is a teaching or a way of life or a yoke. I'm going to put way of life. Shepherd staff, his way of life. The mem is chaos, mighty, or blood. Today we're going to put blood. And the daleth is an entrance or a door. When you say the word Talmudim in Hebrew, it's made of four Hebrew letters, a tav, a lamed, a mem, and a daleth. They represent in the mind of even Hebrew children, a monument to a way of life marking the bloody door. Where would they have gotten such an idea? If you want to be discipled, it will cost something. To enter into the religion of Judaism, you would enter into Pesach. You would have to go through the Passover. You would have to put blood on your doorpost. Your blood or someone else's? A lamb's. And then John the Baptist announces Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And now His blood on the cross was applied to your doorpost. You want to know who is discipled? Those whose very lives become a monument to a way of life marking the way to that bloody door. Now hear me, saints. His blood marked that door a long time before He asked anything of you. In the prophets on the left side, there was a time when the door was shut to you. But they, I'm sorry, in the law, the door was shut to you. The prophet said that door of hope during a time of trouble would be opened. You would go from calling him a master to calling him a husband. And the Ketuvim said that the Lord would open the door and he himself would walk through it. In the Brit Hadashah, we find out that Jesus is the door and it was not very easy for him to put his blood on it. Now, are you going to be called a disciple and have no skin in the game? Your very life must become a covenant sign or monument to his way of life. And it has to show people the way to enter into that bloody door. So at a place where we're going to close, at a place where it's time to consider Hebrews 2, have you drifted away from the pure meaning? Of discipleship? Are you closely associated with Jesus so much as to be said, like Lazarus, they would have to kill you to stomp out his testimony? There's no area of the Word of God that invites you to a lesser calling. There are not four forms of Christianity. If you don't like this one, perhaps you'll find this one more palatable. If you don't like that one, perhaps this one will. There's only one truth. Just one. Christianity is not consumer-based. It's based on you contributing your life's work to pointing to that bloody door. Not as a hobby. Not as a part-time pursuit. 
When you want to know what your obligation should look like, think on what you would expect of Lazarus. Having been raised from the dead publicly in front of the whole world, did Lazarus have an obligation to follow Jesus? Only when it was convenient or did every hour of the rest of his life belong to Jesus? You either are Lazarus or you're not. You need to be saved. It's more than saved from the penalty of sin. It's saved into an entirely new way of life. If that new way of life has never happened, you are not actually saved. We're going to hold an altar call in a minute. If we were cowards and if we were discipling cowards, if what we expected of you was more cowardly, what we would do is say it's a very personal decision. Don't stand out in any way. We don't want to inconvenience you or make you uncomfortable. Hide in the safety of your seat. Among all of these believers, and do nothing except accept in your heart these truths. But the truth is, that's not the call of the gospel. It's never been the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is a radical transformation in front of the whole world that has no plan B, leaves nothing to chance. It radically surrenders to Jesus and shows it in its actions. They left their businesses. They left their homes. They left their, their families. And they did whatever it took to be disciples. Does the Lord have full control of your planet? Full control of your social life? If what we wanted to do was disciple cowards, we'd leave you in your seats. But I'm going to say this. From the moment that we say stand to your feet, if you need to get something right with the Lord, don't look around and see if some brave little girl beats you to the altar. Make up your mind this second in your heart. Do I need to publicly identify with Jesus? Have I taken this thing too lightly? If you need to be saved for the very first time, you're realizing that what you did at eight was not salvation at all. At the best, it was a hope to one day be saved. Come to this side of the stage when we say, if you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, you realize you were set free from the power of death, and now somewhere in the process of sanctification, sin has shown more power over you than you've shown over it, then we'll come to that side of the stage. If you're glorified, then you can just leave. The door is no longer shut. It's a door of hope. It's a door that's marked by his blood in my life. And not just my life, but many other serious men and women in him. To follow him, your life will have to show it. If that is your desire and you need to get that right, when we stand to our feet, don't walk, don't look around, run to the altar. Stand to your feet. Father, we ask now.